Chapter Twelve of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Twelve. Billy had been standing near the wall, inspecting a portrait of the late Mr. Josiah Appleby of which the kindest thing one can say is that one hopes it did not do him justice. She now shrank back against this wall, as if she were trying to get through it. The edge of the portrait's frame tilted her hat out of the straight, but in this supreme moment she did not even notice it. Uh, how do you do?' she said. If she had not been an exceedingly pretty girl, one would have said that she spoke squeakily. The fighting spirit of the Bennets, though it was considerable fighting spirit, had not risen to this emergency. It had ebbed out of her, leaving in its place a cold panic. She had seen this sort of thing in the movies. There was one series of pictures, The Dangers of Diana, where something of the kind had happened to the heroine in every reel. But she had not anticipated that it would ever happen to her, and consequently she had not thought out any plan for coping with such a situation. A grave error. In this world, one should be prepared for everything, or where is one? The best she could do was to stand and stare at the intruder. It would have done Sam Marlowe good. He had now finished the synopsis and was skimming through the current instalment if he could have known how she yearned for his return. "'I brought the revolver,' said Mr. Peters. "'So, so I see,' said Billy. Mr. Peters nursed the weapon affectionately in his hand. He was rather a shy man with women as a rule, but what Sam had told him about her being interested in his revolver had made his heart warm to this girl. "'I was just on my way to have a little practice at the range,' he said. "'Then I thought I might as well look in here.' Uh, "'I suppose—I suppose you're a good shot,' quavered Billy. "'I seldom miss,' said Snow Peters. Billy shuddered. Then, reflecting that the longer she engaged this maniac in conversation, the more hope there was of Sam coming back in time to save her, she essayed further small talk. "'It's—it's very ugly.' "'Oh, no!' said Mr. Peters, hurt. Billy perceived that she had said the wrong thing. "'Very deadly-looking, I mean,' she corrected herself hastily. "'May have deadly work to do, Miss Millikin,' said Mr. Peters. The conversation languished again. "'Billy!' had no further remarks to make of immediate interest, and Mr. Peters was struggling with a return of the deplorable shyness which had so handicapped him in his dealings with the other sex. After a few moments he pulled himself together again, and, as his first act was to replace the pistol in the pocket of his coat, Billy became conscious of a faint stirring of relief. "'The great thing,' said Jeanneau Peters, "'is to learn to draw quickly. Like this,' he added producing the revolver with something of the smoothness and rapidity with which Billy in happier moments had seen conjurers take a bowl of goldfish out of a tall hat. "'Everything depends on getting the first shot. The first shot, Miss Millikin, is vital.' Suddenly Billy had an inspiration. It was hopeless, she knew, to try to convince this poor, demented creature, obsessed with his idée fixe, that she was not Miss Millikin. Denial would be a waste of time might even infuriate him into precipitating the tragedy. It was imperative that she should humour him. 
and while she was humouring him it suddenly occurred to her why not do it thoroughly mr peters she cried you are quite mistaken i beg your pardon said no peters with not a little asperity nothing of the kind you are i assure you i am not quickness in the draw is essential you have been misinformed well i had it directly from the man at the rupert street range said mr peters stiffly and if you had ever seen a picture called two-gun thomas mr peters cried billy desperately he was making a head swim with his meaningless ravings mr peters hear me i am not married to a man at ealing west mr peters betrayed no excitement at the information this girl seemed for some reason to consider her situation an extraordinary one but many women he was aware were in a similar position in fact he could not at the moment think of any of his feminine acquaintances who were married to men at ealing west indeed he said politely won't you believe me exclaimed billy wildly Why, certainly certainly said Joe peters thank god said billy i'm not even engaged it's all been a terrible mistake when two people in a small room are speaking on two distinct and quite different subjects and neither knows what on earth the other is driving at there is bound to be a certain amount of mental confusion but at this point Joe peters though still not wholly equal to the intellectual pressure of the conversation began to see a faint shimmer of light behind the clouds in a nebulous kind of way he began to understand that the girl had come to consult the firm about a breach of promise action some unknown man at ealing west had been trifling with her heart hardened lawyer's clerk as he was that poignant cry i'm not engaged had touched mr peters and she wished to start proceedings mr peters felt almost in his depth again he put the revolver in his pocket and drew out a notebook i should be glad to hear the facts he said with a professional courtesy in the absence of the governor i have told you the facts this man at ealing west said mr peters moist the point of his pencil he wrote you letters proposing marriage no 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 at any rate said mr peters disappointed but hopeful he made love to you before witnesses never never there is no man at ealing west there never was a man at ealing west it was at this point that Joe peters began for the first time to entertain serious doubts of the girl's mental balance the most elementary acquaintance with the latest census was enough to tell him that there were any number of men at ealing west the place was full of them would a sane woman have made an assertion to the contrary he thought not and he was glad that he had the revolver with him she had done nothing as yet actively violent but it was nice to feel prepared he took it out and laid it nonchalantly in his lap the sight of the weapon acted on billy electrically she flung out her hands in a gesture of passionate appeal and played her last card i love you she cried she wished she could have remembered his first name it would have rounded off the sentence neatly in such a moment she could hardly call him mr peters you are the only man i love my gracious goodness ejaculated mr peters and nearly fell over backwards for a naturally shy man this sudden and wholly unexpected declaration was disconcerting and the clerk was moreover engaged he blushed violently and yet even in that moment of consternation he could not check a certain thrill 
No man ever thinks he is as homely as he really is. But Snow Peters had always come fairly near to a correct estimate of his charms, and it had always seemed to him that, in inducing his fiancée to accept him, he had gone some. He now began to wonder if he were not really rather a devil of a chap after all. There must, he felt, be precious few men going about capable of inspiring devotion like this on the strength of about six and a half minutes of casual conversation. Calmer thoughts succeeded this little flicker of complacency. The girl was mad. That was the fact of the matter. He got up and began to edge towards the door. Mr. Samuels would be returning shortly, and he ought to be warned. "'So that's all right, isn't it?' said Billy. "'Oh, quite, quite,' said Mr. Peters. "'Er, thank you very much.' "'I thought you would be pleased,' said Billy, relieved, but puzzled. For a man of volcanic passions, as Sam Marlowe had described him, he seemed to be taking the thing very calmly. She had anticipated a strenuous scene. "'Oh, it's a great compliment,' Mr. Peters assured her. At this point Sam came in, interrupting the conversation at a moment when it had reached a somewhat difficult stage. He had finished the instalment of the serial story in Home Whispers, and, looking at his watch, he fancied that he had allowed sufficient time to elapse for events to have matured along the lines which his imagination had indicated. The atmosphere of the room seemed to him as he entered a little strained. Billy looked pale and agitated. Mr. Peters looked rather agitated too. Sam caught Billy's eye. It had an unspoken appeal in it. He gave an imperceptible nod, a reassuring nod, the nod of a man who understood all, and was prepared to handle the situation. "'Come, Peters,' he said in a deep, firm, quiet voice, laying a hand on the clerk's arm. "'It's time that you went.' "'Yes, indeed, Mr. Samuel. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes, indeed.' "'I'll see you out,' said Sam soothingly and led him through the outer office and on to the landing outside. "'Well, good luck, Peters,' he said, as they stood at the head of the stairs. "'I hope you have a pleasant trip.' "'Why, oh, what's the matter? You seem upset.' "'That girl, Mr. Samuel. I really think, really, she cannot be quite right in her head.' "'Nonsense, nonsense,' said Sam firmly. "'She's all right. Well, good-bye.' "'Good-bye, Mr. Samuel. When did you say you were sailing?' next Saturday, Mr. Samuel, but I fear I shall have no opportunity of seeing you again before then. I have packing to do, and I have to see this gentleman down in the country. All right. Then we'll say good-bye now. Good-bye, Peters. Mind you have a good time in America. I'll tell my father you called." Sam watched him out of sight down the stairs, then turned and made his way back to the inner office. Billy was sitting limply on the chair which no Peters had occupied. She sprang to her feet. "'Has he really gone?' Yes, he's gone this time. Was he... was he violent? A little, said Sam, a little, but I calmed him down. He looked at her gravely. Thank God I was in time. Oh, you are the bravest man in the world, cried Billy, and, burying her face in her hands, burst into tears. There, there, said Sam. There, there, come, come. It's all right now. There, there, there. He knelt down beside her. He slipped one arm round her waist. He patted her hands. I have tried to draw Samuel Marlowe so that he will live on in the printed page. I have endeavoured to delineate his character so that it will be an open book. And if I have succeeded in my task, the reader will by now have become aware that he was a young man 
with the gall of an army mule. His conscience, if he had ever had one, had become atrophied through long disuse. He had given this sensitive girl the worst fright she had ever had since a mouse had got into her bedroom at school. He had caused no Peters to totter off to the Rupert Street range, making low, bleating noises. And did he care? No. All he cared about was the fact that he had erased for ever from Billy's mind that undignified picture of himself as he had appeared on the boat, and substituted another, which showed him brave, resourceful, gallant. All he cared about was the fact that Billy, so cold ten minutes before, had allowed him to kiss her for the forty-second time. If you had asked him, he would have said that he had acted for the best, that it was out of evil cometh good, or some sickening thing like that. That was the sort of man Samuel Marlowe was. His face was very close to Billy's, who had cheered up wonderfully by this time, and he was whispering his degraded words of endearment into her ear, when there was a sort of explosion in the doorway. "'Great Godfrey!' exclaimed Mr. Rufus Bennet, gazing on the scene from this point of vantage, and mopping with a large handkerchief a scarlet face, which, as the result of climbing three flights of stairs, had become slightly soluble. "'Great heavens above!' End of chapter 12 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Chapter 13 of Three Men and a Maid This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 13 Remarkable as the apparition of Mr. Bennet appeared to his daughter, the explanation of his presence at that moment in the office of Marlowe, Thorpe, Prescott, Winslow, and Appleby was simple. He had woken early that morning, and, glancing at his watch on the dressing-table, he had suddenly become aware of something bright and yellow beside it, and had paused transfixed like Robinson Crusoe staring at the footprint in the sand. If he had not been in England, he would have said it was a patch of sunshine. Hardly daring to hope, he pulled up the shades and looked out on the garden. It was a superb morning. It was as if some giant hand had uncorked a great bottle full of the distilled scent of grass, trees, flowers, and hay. Mr. Bennet sniffed luxuriantly. Gone was the gloom of the past days, swept away in a great exhilaration breakfast had deepened his content. Henry Mortimer, softened by the same balmy influence, had been perfectly charming. All their little differences had melted away in the genial warmth. And then, suddenly, Mr. Bennet remembered that he had sent Billy up to London to enlist the aid of the law against his old friend, and remorse gripped him. Half an hour later he was in the train on his way to London to intercept her, and cancel her mission. He had arrived breathless at Sir Mallaby's office, and the first thing he had seen was his daughter in the arms of a young man who was a total stranger to him. The shock took away his breath again just as it was coming back. He advanced shakily into the room, and supported himself with one hand on the desk, while with the other he plied the handkerchief on his superheated face. Billy was the first to speak. "'My father,' she said, "'I didn't expect you.' 
as an explanation of her behaviour this might no doubt have been considered sufficient but as an excuse for it mr bennett thought it inadequate he tried to convey a fatherly reproof by puffing like a seal after a long dive in search of fish this is sam proceeded billy sam marlowe mr bennett became aware that the young man was moving towards him with an outstretched hand it took a lot to disconcert sam and he was the calmest person present he gave evidence of this in a neat speech he did not in so many words congratulate mr bennett on the piece of luck which had befallen him but he tried to make him understand by his manner that he was distinctly to be envied as the prospective father-in-law of such a one as himself mr bennett stared in a frozen sort of way at the hand he had placed sam by now he knew that sir mallaby had a son this presumably was he but the discovery did not diminish his indignation i'm delighted to meet you mr bennett said sam you could not have come at a more fortunate moment you see for yourself how things are there is no need for a long explanation you came to find a daughter mr bennett and you have found a son and he would like to see the man thought sam who could have put it more cleverly and pleasantly and tactfully than that what are you talking about said mr bennett recovering breath i haven't got a son i will be a son to you i will be the prop of your declining years what the devil do you mean by declining years demanded mr bennett with asperity he means when they do decline father dear said billy of course of course said sam when they do decline not till then of course i wouldn't dream of it but once they do decline count on me i should like to say for my part he went on handsomely what an honour i think it to become the son-in-law of a man like mr bennett bennett of new york he added spaciously not so much because he knew what he meant for he would have been the first to admit that he did not but because it sounded well oh said mr bennett you do do you mr bennett sat down he put away his handkerchief which had certainly earned a rest then he fastened a baleful stare upon his newly discovered son it was not the sort of look a proud and happy father-in-law to be ought to have directed at a prospective relative it was not as a matter of fact the sort of look which anyone ought to have directed at anybody except possibly an exceptionally prudish judge at a criminal in the dock convicted of a more than usually atrocious murder billy not being in the actual line of fire only caught the tail end of it but it was enough to create a misgiving oh father you aren't angry angry you can't be angry why can't i be angry demanded mr bennett with a sense of injury which comes to self-willed men when their whims are thwarted why the devil shouldn't i be angry i am angry i come here to find you like like this and you seem to expect me to throw my hat in the air and give three rousing cheers of course i'm angry you are engaged to be married to an excellent young man of the highest character one of the finest young men i have ever seen oh well said sam straightening his tie modestly oh, of course if you say so it's awfully good of you but father cried billy i never really loved bream i like him very much but i could never love him i only got engaged to him because you were anxious for it and because because i had quarrelled with the man i really loved i don't want to marry bream 
Naturally, said Sam. Naturally. Quite out of the question. In a few days we'll all be roaring with laughter at the very idea. Mr. Bennett scorched him, with a look compared with which his earlier effort had been a loving glance. Wilhelmina, he said, go into the outer office. But, Father, you don't understand. You don't realize that Sam has just saved my life. Saved your life? What do you mean? There was a lunatic in here with a pistol, and Sam saved me. It was nothing, said Sam modestly. Nothing. Go into the outer office, thundered Mr. Bennett, quite unmoved by this story. Very well, said Billy. I shall always love you, Sam, she said, pausing mutinously at the door. I shall always love you, said Sam. Nobody can keep us apart. Oh, they're wasting their time trying, said Sam. You're the most wonderful man in the world. There never was a girl like you. Get out! bellowed Mr. Bennett, whose equanimity this love scene, which I think beautiful, was jarring profoundly. Now, sir, he said to Sam as the door closed. Yes, let's talk it over calmly, said Sam. I will not talk it over calmly. Oh, come, you can do it if you try. Bream Mortimer is the son of Henry Mortimer. I know, said Sam, and while it's no doubt unfair to hold that against him, it's a point you can't afford to ignore. Henry Mortimer. You and I have Henry Mortimer's number. We know what Henry Mortimer is like. A man who spends his time thinking up ways of annoying you. You can't seriously want to have the Mortimer family linked to you by marriage. Henry Mortimer is my oldest friend. That makes it all the worse. Fancy a man who calls himself your friend treating you like that. The misunderstanding to which you allude has been completely smoothed over. My relations with Mr. Mortimer are thoroughly cordial. Well, have it your own way. Personally, I wouldn't trust a man like that. And as for letting my daughter marry his son, I have decided once and for all, if you'll take my advice, you'll break the thing off. I will not take your advice. I wouldn't expect to charge you for it, explained Sam reassuringly. I give it to you as a friend, not as a lawyer. Six and eightpence to others, free to you. Will you understand that my daughter is going to marry Bream Mortimer? What are you giggling about? Sounds so silly, the idea of anyone marrying Bream Mortimer. I mean, let me tell you, he is a thoroughly estimable young man. And there you put the whole thing in a nutshell. Your daughter is a girl of spirit. She would hate to be tied for life to an estimable young man. She will do as I tell her. Sam regarded him sternly. Have you no regard for her happiness? I am the best judge of what is best for her. If you ask me, said Sam candidly, I think you're a rotten judge. I did not come here to be insulted. I like that. You've been insulting me ever since you arrived. What right have you to say that I'm not fit to marry your daughter? I did not say that. You've implied it. And you've been looking at me as if I were a leper or something the Pure Food Committee has condemned. Why, that's what I ask you, said Sam, warming up. This, he fancied, was the way Widgery would have tackled a troublesome client. Why, answer me that. I... Sam rapped sharply on the desk. Be careful, sir, be careful. He knew that this was what lawyers always said. Of course, there is a difference in position between a miscreant whom you suspect of an attempt at perjury, and the father of the girl you love, whose consent to the match you wish to obtain. 
but Sam was in no mood for these nice distinctions. He only knew that lawyers told people to be very careful. So he told Mr. Bennett to be very careful. What do you mean, be very careful? said Mr. Bennett. Dashed if I know, said Sam frankly. The question struck him as a mean attack. He wondered how Widgery would have met it. Probably by smiling quietly and polishing his spectacles. Sam had no spectacles. He endeavoured, however, to smile quietly. Don't laugh at me! roared Mr. Bennett. I'm not laughing at you. You are. I'm not. Well, don't then, said Mr. Bennett. He glowered at his young companion. I don't know why I'm wasting my time talking to you. The position is clear to the meanest intelligence. You cannot have any difficulty in understanding it. I have no objection to you personally. Come, this is better, said Sam. I don't know you well enough to have any objection to you or any opinion of you at all. This is the first time I have ever met you in my life. Mark you, said Sam. I think I'm one of those fellows who grow on people. As far as I am concerned, you simply do not exist. You may be the noblest character in London, or you may be wanted by the police. I don't know, and I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. You mean nothing in my life. I don't know you. You must persevere, said Sam. You must buckle to and get to know me. Don't give the thing up in this half-hearted way. Everything has to have a beginning. Stick to it. In a week or two you'll find yourself knowing me quite well. I don't want to know you. You say that now, but wait. Thank goodness I have not got to, exploded Mr. Bennett, ceasing to be calm and reasonable, with a suddenness which affected Sam much as though half a pound of gunpowder had been touched off under his chair. For the little I have seen of you has been quite enough. Kindly understand that my daughter is engaged to be married to another man, and that I do not wish to see or hear anything of you again. I shall try to forget your very existence, and I shall try to see to it that Wilhelm Minor does the same. You're an impudent scoundrel, sir, an impudent scoundrel. I don't like you. I don't wish to see you again. If you were the last man in the world, I wouldn't allow my daughter to marry you. If that is quite clear, I will wish you good morning. Mr. Bennett thundered out of the room, and Sam, temporarily stunned by the outburst, remained where he was, gaping. A few minutes later, life began to return to his palsied limbs. It occurred to him that Mr. Bennett had forgotten to kiss him good-bye, and he went into the outer office to tell him so. But the outer office was empty. Sam stood for a moment in thought, then returned to the inner office, and picking up a timetable began to look out trains to the village of Windlehurst in Hampshire, the nearest station to his Aunt Adeline's charming old-world house, Windles. End of chapter 13 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Chapter 14 of Three Men and a Maid This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 14 As I read over the last few chapters of this narrative, I see that I have been giving the reader a rather too jumpy time. To almost a painful degree I have excited his pity and terror, and, though that is what Aristotle tells one ought to do, I feel that a little respite would not be out of order. The reader can stand having his emotions churned up to a certain point, but after that he wants to take it easy. It is with pleasure, therefore, 
that I turn now to depict a quiet, peaceful scene in domestic life. It won't last long, three minutes perhaps, by a stopwatch, but that's not my fault. My task is to record facts as they happened. The morning sunlight fell pleasantly on the garden of Windles, turning it into the green and amber paradise which nature had intended it to be. A number of the local birds sang melodiously in the undergrowth at the end of the lawn, while others, more energetic, hopped about the grass in quest of worms. Bees, mercifully ignorant that after they had worked themselves to the bone gathering honey, the proceeds of their labour would be collared and consumed by idle humans, buzzed industriously to and fro, and dived head foremost into flowers. Winged insects danced sarabands in the sunshine, and, in a deck-chair, under the cedar-tree, Billy Bennet, with a sketching-block on her knee, was engaged in drawing a picture of the ruined castle. Beside her, curled up in a ball, lay her Pekingese dog, Pinky Boodles. Beside Pinky Boodles slept Smith the bulldog. In the distant stable-yard, unseen but audible, a boy in shirt-sleeves was washing the car, and singing, as much as treacherous memory would permit, of a popular sentimental ballad. You may think that was all. You may suppose that nothing could be added to deepen the atmosphere of peace and content. Not so. At this moment Mr. Bennet emerged from the French windows of the drawing-room, clad in white flannels and buckskin shoes, supplying just the finishing touch that was needed. Mr. Bennet crossed the lawn and sat down beside his daughter. Smith the bulldog, raising a sleepy head, breathed heavily. But Mr. Bennet did not quail. Of late, relations of distant but solid friendship had come to exist between them. Skeptical at first, Mr. Bennet had at length allowed himself to be persuaded of the mildness of the animal's nature, and the essential purity of his motives, and now it was only when they encountered each other unexpectedly round sharp corners that he ever betrayed the slightest alarm. So now, while Smith slept on the grass, Mr. Bennet reclined in the chair. It was the nearest thing modern civilization had seen to the lion lying down with the lamb. Sketching, said Mr. Bennet. Yes, said Billy, for there were no secrets between this girl and her father. At least not many. She occasionally omitted to tell him some such trifle as that she had met Samuel Marlowe on the previous morning in a leafy lane, and intended to meet him again this afternoon, but apart from that her mind was an open book. That's a great morning, said Mr. Bennet. So peaceful, said Billy. The eggs you get in the country in England, said Mr. Bennet, suddenly striking a lyrical note, are extraordinary. I had three for breakfast this morning which defied competition, simply defied competition. They were large and brown and fresh as new-mown hay. He mused for a while in a sort of ecstasy. And the hams, he went on, the ham I had for breakfast was what I call ham. I don't know when I've had ham like that. I suppose it's something they feed the pigs, he concluded, in soft meditation. And he gave a little sigh. Life was very beautiful. Silence fell, broken only by the snoring of Smith. Billy was thinking of Sam, and of what Sam had said to her in the lane yesterday, of his clean-cut face, and the look in his eyes, so vastly superior to any look that ever came into the eyes of Bream Mortimer. She was telling herself that her relations with Sam were an idyll, for, being young and romantic, she enjoyed this freshet of surreptitious meetings, which had come to enliven the stream of her life, 
it was pleasant to go warily into deep lanes where forbidden love lurked she cast a swift side-glance at her father the unconscious ogre in her fairy story what would he say if he knew but mr bennett did not know and consequently continued to meditate peacefully on ham they had sat like this for perhaps a minute two happy mortals lulled by the gentle beauty of the day when from the window of the drawing-room there stepped out a white-capped maid and one may just as well say at once and have done with it that this is the point where the quiet peaceful scene in domestic life terminates with a jerk and pity and terror resume work at the old stand the maid her name not that it matters was susan and she was engaged to be married though the point is of no importance to the second assistant at green's grocery stores in windlehurst approached mr bennett please sir a gentleman to see you eh said mr bennett torn from a dream of large pink slices edged with bread-crumbed fat eh a gentleman to see you sir in the drawing-room he says you're expecting him of course yes to be sure mr bennett heaved himself out of the deck-chair beyond the french windows he could see an indistinct form in a grey suit and remembered that this was the morning on which sir malaby marlowe's clerk who was taking those schultzen bowen papers for him to america had written that he would call to-day was friday no doubt the man was sailing from southampton to-morrow he crossed the lawn entered the drawing-room and found mr Jnot peters with an expression on his ill-favoured face which looked like one of consternation of uneasiness even of alarm morning mr peters said bennett very good of you to run down take a seat i'll just go through a few notes i've made about the matter mr bennett exclaimed joe peters may may i speak what do you mean eh what something to say what is it mr peters cleared his throat awkwardly he was feeling embarrassed at the unpleasantness of the duty which he had to perform but it was a duty and he did not intend to shrink from performing it ever since gazing appreciatively through the drawing-room windows at the charming scene outside he had caught sight of the unforgettable form of billy seated in her chair with the sketching block on her knee he had realized that he could not go away in silence leaving mr bennett ignorant of what he was up against one almost inclines to fancy that there must have been a curse of some kind on this house of windles certainly everybody who entered it seemed to leave his peace of mind behind him you know peters had been feeling notably happy during his journey in the train from london and the subsequent walk from the station the splendour of the morning had soothed his nerves and the faint wind that blew inshore from the sea spoke to him hearteningly of adventure and romance there was a jar of potpourri on the drawing-room table and he had derived considerable pleasure from sniffing at it in short joe peters was in the pink without a care in the world until he had looked out of the window and seen billy mr bennett he said i don't want to do anybody any harm but if you know all about it and she suits you well and good but i think it's my duty to inform you that your stenographer is not quite right in the head i don't say she's dangerous but she isn't compost she decidedly is not compost mr bennett mr bennett stared at his well-wisher dumbly for a moment the thought crossed his mind that if ever there was a case of the pot calling the kettle black 
This was it. His opinion of Dino Peter's sanity went down to zero. What are you talking about, my stenographer? What stenographer? It occurred to Mr. Peters that a man of the other's wealth and business connections might well have a troop of these useful females. He particularized. I mean, the young lady out in the garden there, to whom you were dictating just now, the young lady with the writing pad on her knee. What? What? Mr. Bennett spluttered. Do you know who that is? he exclaimed. Oh, yes, indeed, said Jano Peters. I have only met her once when she came into our office to see Mr. Samuel, but her personality and appearance stamped themselves so forcibly on my mind that I know I am not mistaken. I am sure it's my duty to tell you exactly what happened when I was left alone with her in the office. We had hardly exchanged a dozen words, Mr. Bennett, when, here Jano Peters, modest to the core, turned vividly pink, when she told me, she told me I was the only man she loved. Mr. Bennett uttered a loud cry. Sweet spirits of nitre! Mr. Peters could make nothing of this exclamation, and he was deterred from seeking light by the sudden action of his host, who, bounding from his seat with a vivacity of which one could not have believed him capable, charged to the French window and emitted a bellow. Wilhelmina! Billy looked up from her sketching book with a start. It seemed to her that there was a note of anguish of panic in that voice. What her father could have found in the drawing-room to be frightened at, she did not know. But she dropped her block and hurried to his assistance. What is it, father? Mr. Bennet had retired within the room when she arrived, and, going in after him, she perceived at once what had caused his alarm. There before her, looking more sinister than ever, stood the lunatic Peters. And there was an ominous bulge in his right coat pocket which betrayed the presence of the revolver. What Jano Peters was, as a matter of fact, carrying in his right coat pocket, was a bag of mixed chocolates, which he had purchased in Windlehurst. But Billy's eyes, though bright, had no X-ray quality. Her simple creed was that if Jano Peters bulged at any point, that bulge must be caused by a pistol. She screamed and backed against the wall. Her whole acquaintance with Jano Peters had been on constant backing against walls. Don't shoot! she cried, as Mr. Peters absent-mindedly dipped his hand into the pocket of his coat. Oh, please don't shoot! What the deuce do you mean? said Mr. Bennet irritably. He hated to have people gibbering around him in the morning. Well, Helmina, this man says you told him you loved him. Yes, I did, and I, I do. R really, really, Mr. Peters, I do. Suffering cats! Mr. Bennet clutched at the back of a chair. But you've only met him once, he added, almost pleadingly. You don't understand, father dear, said Billy desperately. I'll explain the whole thing later, when— Father, ejaculated Jano Peters feebly. Did you say father? Of course I said father. This is my daughter, Mr. Peters. My daughter? I mean, your daughter. Ah, uh, are you sure? Of course I'm sure. Do you think I don't know my own daughter? She called me Mr. Peters. Well, it's your name, isn't it? But if she, if this young lady is your daughter, how did she know my name? The point seemed to strike Mr. Bennet. He turned to Billy. That's true. Tell me, Wilhelmina, when did you and Mr. Peters meet? Why, in, in Sir Malaby Marlowe's office the morning you came there, and found me when I was talking to Sam. Mr. Peters uttered a subdued gargling sound. He was finding this scene oppressive, 
to a not very robust intellect. He, Mr. Samuel, told me your name, Miss Millikan, he said dully. Billy stared at him. Mr. Marlowe told you my name was Miss Millikan, she repeated. He told me that you were the sister of the Miss Millikan who acts as stenographer for the Gov. For Sir Mallaby, he sent me in to show you my revolver, because he said you were interested and wanted to see it. Billy uttered an exclamation. So did Mr. Bennett, who hated mysteries. What revolver? Which revolver? What's all this about a revolver? Have you a revolver? Why, yes, Mr. Bennett. It's packed now in my trunk, but I usually carry it about with me everywhere in order to take a little practice at the Rupert Street range. I bought it when Sir Mallaby told me he was sending me to America, because I thought I ought to be prepared, because of the underworld, you know. A cold gleam had come into Billy's eyes. Her face was pale and hard. If Sam Marlowe, at that moment carolling blithely in his bedroom at the Blue Boar in Windlehurst, washing his hands preparatory to descending to the coffee-room for a bit of cold lunch, could have seen her, the song would have frozen on his lips, which one might mention, as showing that there is always a bright side, would have been much appreciated by the travelling gentleman in the adjoining room, who had had a wild night with some other travelling gentlemen, and was then nursing a rather severe headache, separated from Sam's penetrating baritone only by the thickness of a wooden wall. Billy knew all, and terrible though the fact is, as an indictment of the male sex, when a woman knows all, there is invariably trouble ahead for some man. There was trouble ahead for Sam Marlowe. Billy, now in possession of the facts, had examined them and come to the conclusion that Sam had played a practical joke on her, and she was a girl who strongly disapproved of practical humour at her expense. "'That morning I met you at Sir Mallaby's office, Mr. Peters,' she said in a frosty voice. "'Mr. Marlowe had just finished telling me a long and convincing story to the effect that you were madly in love with a Miss Millikan who had jilted you, and that this had driven you off your head, and that you spent your time going about with a pistol, trying to shoot every red-haired woman you saw, because you thought they were Miss Millikan. Naturally, when you came in and called me Miss Millikan, and brandished a revolver, I was very frightened. I thought it would be useless to tell you that I wasn't Miss Millikan, so I tried to persuade you that I was, and hadn't jilted you after all. Good gracious! said Mr. Peters, vastly relieved, and yet, for always there is bitter mixed with the sweet, a shade disappointed. Then, uh, you don't love me after all? No, said Billy. I'm engaged to Bream Mortimer, and I love him and nobody else in the world. The last portion of her observation was intended for the consumption of Mr. Bennet, rather than that of Mr. Peters, and he consumed it joyfully. He folded Billy in his ample embrace. I always thought you had a grain of sense hidden away somewhere, he said, paying her a striking tribute. I hope now that we've heard the last of all this foolishness about that young hound Marlowe. You certainly have. I don't want to ever see him again. I hate him. You couldn't do better, my dear, said Mr. Bennet approvingly. And now run away. Mr. Peters and I have some business to discuss. A quarter of an hour later, Webster the valet, sunning himself in the stable-yard, was aware of the daughter of his employer approaching him. Webster, said Billy, who was still pale. Her face was still hard, and her eyes still gleamed coldly. Miss, 
said Webster politely, throwing away the cigarette with which he had been refreshing himself. Will you do something for me? I should be more than delighted, miss. Billy whisked into view an envelope which had been concealed in the recesses of her dress. Do you know the country about here well, Webster? Within a certain radius, not unintimately, miss. I have been for several enjoyable rambles since the fine weather set in. Do you know the place where there is a road leading to Havant and another to Cosham? It's about a mile down. I know the spot well, miss. Well, straight in front of you, when you get to the signpost, there is a little lane. I know it, miss, said Webster. A delightfully romantic spot. What with the overhanging trees, the wealth of blackberry bushes, the varied wild flowers. Yes, never mind about the wild flowers now. I want you, after lunch, to take this note to a gentleman you will find sitting on the gate at the bottom of the lane. Sitting on the gate, miss. Yes, miss. Or leaning against it. You can't mistake him. He is rather tall, and, oh, well, there isn't likely to be anybody else there, so you can't make a mistake. Give him this, will you? Certainly, miss. Uh, any message? Any what? Any verbal message, miss? Oh, certainly not. You won't forget, will you, Webster? No, on no account whatever, miss. Shall I wait for an answer? There won't be an answer, said Billy, setting her teeth for an instant. Oh, Webster, miss, can I rely on you to say nothing to anybody? Most undoubtedly, miss, most undoubtedly. Does anybody know anything about a fellow named S. Marlowe? inquired Webster, entering the kitchen. Don't all speak at once. S. Marlowe, ever heard of him? He paused for a reply, but nobody had any information to impart. Because there's something jolly well up. Our Miss B is sending me with notes for him at the bottom of the lanes. And her engaged to Mr. Mortimer, said the scullery maid, shocked. The way they go on. Chronic, said the scullery maid. Don't you go getting alarmed, and don't you, added Webster, go shoving your ear where your social superiors are talking. I've had to speak to you about that before. My remarks were addressed to Mrs. Withers here. He indicated the cook with a respectful gesture. Yes, here's the note, Mrs. Withers. Of course, if you had a steamy kettle handy, in about half a moment we could, but no, perhaps it's wiser not to risk it. And, come to that, I don't need to unstick the envelope to know what's inside here. It's the raspberry, ma'am. Or I've lost all my power to read the human female countenance. Very cold and proud-looking she was. I don't know who this S. Marlowe is, but I do know one thing. In this hand I hold the instrument that's going to give it him in the neck. Proper. Right in the neck, or my name isn't Montague Webster. Well, said Mrs. Withers comfortably, pausing for a moment from her labours, think of that. The way I look at it, said Webster, is that there's been some sort of understanding between our Miss B and this S. Marlowe, and she's thought better of it, and decided to stick to the man of her parents' choice. She's chosen wealth and made up her mind to hand the humble suitor the mitten. There was a rather similar situation in Cupid or Mammon, the nosegay novelette that I was reading in the train coming down here, only that ended different. For my part, I'd been better pleased if our Miss B would let the cash go, and obey the dictates of her own heart. But these modern girls are all alike. All out for the stuff they are. Oh, well, it's none of my affair, said Webster, stifling a not unmanly sigh. For beneath that immaculate shirt-front there beat a warm heart. Montague Webster was a sentimentalist. End of chapter 14
Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Chapter 15 of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 15. At half past two that afternoon, full of optimism and cold beef, gaily unconscious that Webster, with measured strides, was approaching ever nearer with the note that would give it him in the neck proper. Samuel Marlowe dangled his feet from the top bar of the gate at the end of the lane and smoked contentedly as he waited for Billy to make her appearance. He had had an excellent lunch, his pipe was drawing well, and all nature smiled. The breeze from the sea across the meadows tickled pleasantly on the back of his head and sang a soothing song in the long grass and ragged robins at his feet. He was looking forward with a roseate glow of anticipation to the moment when the white flutter of Billy's dress would break the green of the foreground. How eagerly he would jump from the gate! How lovingly he would! The elegant figure of Webster interrupted his reverie. Sam had never seen Webster before, and it was with no pleasure that he saw him now. He had come to regard this lane as his own property, and he resented trespassers. He tucked his legs under him and scowled at Webster under the brim of his hat. The valet advanced towards him with the air of an affable executioner, stepping daintily to the block. "'Mr. Marlowe, sir?' he inquired politely. Sam was startled. He could make nothing of this. "'Eh? What?' "'Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. S. Marlowe?' "'Yes, that's my name.' "'Mine is Webster, sir. I am Mr. Bennett's personal gentleman's gentleman.' Miss Bennet entrusted me with this note to deliver to you, sir. Sam began to grasp the situation. For some reason or other, the dear girl had been prevented from coming this afternoon, and she had written to explain and to relieve his anxiety. It was like her. It was just the sweet, thoughtful thing he would have expected her to do. His contentment with the existing scheme of things returned. The sun shone out again, and he found himself amiably disposed towards the messenger. Fine day, he said. As he took the note. Extremely, sir, said Webster, outwardly unemotional, inwardly full of a grave pity. It was plain to him that there had been no previous little rift to prepare the young man for the cervical operation which awaited him, and he edged a little nearer in order to be handy to catch Sam if the shock knocked him off the gate. As it happened, it did not. Having read the opening words of the note, Sam rocked violently, but his feet were twined about the lower bars, and this saved him from overbalancing. Webster stepped back, relieved. The note fluttered to the ground. Webster, picking it up and handing it back, was able to get a glimpse of the first two sentences. They confirmed his suspicions. The note was hot stuff. Assuming that it continued as it began, it was about the warmest thing of its kind that Penn had ever written. Webster had received one or two heated epistles from the sex in his time. Your man of gallantry can hardly hope to escape these unpleasantnesses. But none had got off the mark quite so swiftly, and with quite so much frigid violence as this. Thanks, said Sam, mechanically. Not at all, sir. You are very welcome. Sam resumed his reading. A cold perspiration broke out on his forehead, his toes curled, 
and something seemed to be crawling down the small of his back. His heart had moved from its proper place, and was now beating in his throat. He swallowed once or twice to remove the obstruction, but without success. A kind of pall had settled on the landscape, blotting out the sun. Of all the rotten sensations in this world, the worst is the realization that a thousand to one chance has come off, and caused our wrongdoing to be detected. There had seemed no possibility of that little ruse of his being discovered. Yet here was Billy in full possession of the facts. It almost made the thing worse that she did not say how she had come into possession of them. This gave Sam that feeling of self-pity, that sense of having been ill-used by fate, which makes the bringing home of crime so particularly poignant. Fine day, he muttered. He had a sort of subconscious feeling that it was imperative to keep engaging Webster in light conversation. Yes, sir. Weather still keeps up, agreed the valet, suavely. Sam frowned over the note. He felt injured. Sending a fellow notes didn't give him a chance. If she'd come in person and denounced him, it would not have been an agreeable experience, but at least it would have been possible then to have pleaded and cajoled and, and all that sort of thing. But what could he do now? It seemed to him that his only possible course was to write a note in reply begging her to see him. He explored his pockets and found a pencil and a scrap of paper. For some moments he scribbled desperately. Then he folded the note. "'Will you take this to Miss Bennet?' he said, holding it out. Webster took the missive, because he wanted to read it later at his leisure, but he shook his head. "'Useless, I fear, sir,' he said gravely. "'What do you mean?' "'I'm afraid it would affect little or nothing, sir. Sending our Miss B. notes.' She is not in the proper frame of mind to appreciate them. I saw her face when she handed me the letter you have just read, and I assure you, sir, she is not in a malleable mood. You seem to know a lot about it. I have studied the sex, sir," said Webster modestly. I mean about my business, confound it. You seem to know all about it. Why, yes, sir. I think I may say that I have grasped the position of affairs, and if you will permit me to say so, sir. You have my respectful sympathy. Dignity is a sensitive plant which flourishes only under the fairest conditions. Sam's had perished in the bleak east wind of Billy's note. In other circumstances he might have resented this intrusion of a stranger into his most intimate concerns. His only emotion now was one of dull but distinct gratitude. The four winds of heaven blew chilly upon his raw and unprotected soul and he wanted to wrap it up in a mantle of sympathy, careless of the source from which he borrowed that mantle. If Webster, the valet, felt disposed, as he seemed to indicate, to comfort him, let the thing go on. At that moment Sam would have accepted condolences from a coal-heaver. I was reading a story, one of the Nosegay novelettes, I do not know if you are familiar with the series, sir, in which much the same situation occurred. It was entitled Cupid or Mammon. The heroine, Lady Blanche Trefusis, forced by her parents to wed a wealthy suitor, dispatches a note to her humble lover, informing him that it cannot be. I believe it often happens like that, sir. You're all wrong, said Sam. It's not like that at all. Indeed, sir. I supposed it was. Nothing like it. I, I, Sam's dignity on its deathbed made a last effort to assert itself. "'I don't know what it's got to do with you,' 
"'Precisely, sir,' said Webster, with dignity. "'Just as you say. Good afternoon, sir.' He swayed gracefully, conveying a suggestion of departure without moving his feet. The action was enough for Sam. Dignity gave an expiring gurgle and passed away, regretted by all. "'Don't go!' he cried. The idea of being alone in this infernal lane without human support overpowered him. Moreover, Webster had personality. He exuded it. Already Sam had begun to cling to him in spirit, and rely on his support. "'Don't go!' "'Certainly not, if you do not wish it, sir.' Webster coughed gently, to show his appreciation of the delicate nature of the conversation. He was consumed with curiosity, and his threatened departure had been but a pretense. A team of horses could not have moved Webster at that moment. "'Might I ask, then, what?' "'There's been a misunderstanding,' said Sam. "'At least there was, but now there isn't, if you see what I mean.' "'I fear I have not quite grasped your meaning, sir.' "'Well, I, I played a sort of—you might almost call it a sort of trick on Miss Bennet. With the best of motives, of course.' "'Of course, sir. And she's found out.' I don't know how she's found out, but she has. So there you are. Of what nature would the trick be, sir? A species of ruse, sir? Some kind of innocent deception? Well, it was like this. It was a complicated story to tell, and Sam, a prey to conflicting emotions, told it badly. But such was the almost superhuman intelligence of Webster, that he succeeded in grasping the salient points. Indeed, he said it reminded him of something of much the same kind in a nosegay novelette, all for her, where the hero, anxious to win the esteem of the lady of his heart, had bribed a tramp to simulate an attack upon her in a lonely road. "'The principle's the same,' said Webster. "'Well, what did he do when she found out?' "'She did not find out, sir. All ended happily, and never had the wedding bells in the old village church rung out a blither peal than they did at the subsequent union.' Sam was thoughtful. Bribed a tramp to attack her, did he? Yes, sir. And she never thought much of him till that moment, sir. Very cold and haughty she had been, his social status being considerably inferior to her own. But when she cried for help, and he dashed out from behind a hedge, well, it made all the difference. I wonder where I could get a good tramp, said Sam, meditatively. Webster shook his head. I really would hardly recommend such a procedure, sir. No, it would be difficult to make a tramp understand what you wanted, Sam brightened. I've got it. You pretend to attack her, and I'll— I couldn't, sir. I couldn't, really. I should jeopardize my situation. Oh, come, be a man. No, sir, I fear not. There's a difference between handing in your resignation. I was compelled to do that only recently, owing to a few words I had with the Governor though subsequently prevailed upon to withdraw it. I say there's a difference between handing your resignation and being given the sack, and that's what would happen, without a character, what's more. And lucky if it didn't mean a prison cell. No, sir, I should not contemplate such a thing. Then I don't see there's anything to be done, said Sam, morosely. Oh, I shouldn't say that, sir, said Webster, encouragingly. It's simply a matter of finding the way. The problem confronting you, I should say, us, said Sam, most decidedly us. Thank you very much, sir. I would not have presumed, but if you say so, the problem confronting us, as I envisage it, 
resolves itself into this you have offended our miss b and she has expressed a disinclination ever to see you again now then is it possible in spite of her attitude to recapture her esteem exactly said sam there are several methods which occur to one they don't occur to me well for example you might rescue her from a burning building as in true as steel set fire to the house eh said sam reflectively yes there might be something in that i would hardly advise such a thing said webster a little hastily flattered at the readiness with which his disciple was taking his advice yet acutely alive to the fact that he slept at the top of the house himself a little drastic if i may say so it might be better to save her from drowning as in the earl's secret ah but where would she drown well there is a lake in the grounds excellent said sam terrific i knew i could rely on you say no more the whole thing's settled you take her out rowing on the lake and upset the boat i plunge in i suppose you can swim no sir oh well never mind you'll manage somehow i expect cling to the upturned boat or something i shouldn't wonder there's always a way yes that's the plan when is the earliest you could arrange this i fear such a course must be considered out of the question sir it really wouldn't do i can't see a flaw in it well in the first place it would certainly jeopardize my situation oh hang your situation you talk as if you were a prime minister or something you can easily get another situation a valuable man like you said sam ingratiatingly no sir said webster firmly from boyhood up i have always had a regular horror of water i can't so much as go paddling without an uneasy feeling the image of webster paddling was arresting enough to occupy sam's thoughts for a moment it was an inspiring picture and for an instant uplifted his spirits then they fell again well i don't see what there is to be done he said gloomily it's no good making suggestions if you have some frivolous objection to all of them my idea said webster would be something which did not involve my own personal and active cooperation sir if it's all the same to you i should prefer to limit my assistance to advice i'm anxious to help but i am a man of regular habits which i do not wish to disturb did you ever read footpaths of fate in the nosegay series sir i've only just remembered it it contains the most helpful suggestion of the lot there had been a misunderstanding between the heroine and the hero their names have slipped my mind though i fancy his was cyril and she told him to hop it to what to leave her for ever sir what do you think he did how the deuce do i know he kidnapped her little brother sir to whom she was devoted kept him hidden for a bit and then returned him and in her gratitude all was forgotten and forgiven and never i know never had the bells of the old village church rung out a blither peal exactly sir well there if you allow me to say so you are sir you need seek no further for a plan of action miss bennet hasn't got a little brother no sir but she has a dog and is greatly attached to it sam stared from the expression on his face it was evident that webster imagined himself to have made a suggestion of exceptional intelligence it struck sam as the silliest he had ever heard you mean i ought to steal her dog precisely sir but good heavens have you seen that dog the one to which i allude is a small brown animal 
with a fluffy tail. Yes, and a bark like a steam siren, and in addition to that, about eighty-five teeth, all sharper than razors. I couldn't get within ten feet of that dog without its lifting the roof off, and if I did, it would chew me into small pieces. I had anticipated that difficulty, sir. In Footpaths of Fate, there was a nurse who assisted the hero by drugging the child. By Jove! said Sam, impressed. He rewarded her, said Webster, allowing his gaze to stray nonchalantly over the countryside, liberally, very liberally. If you mean that you expect me to reward you if you drug the dog, said Sam, don't worry. Let me bring this thing off, and you can have all I've got, and my cufflinks as well. Come now. This is really beginning to look like something. Speak to me more of this matter. Where do we go from here? I beg your pardon, sir. I mean, what's the next step in the scheme? Oh, Lord! Sam's face fell. The light of hope died out in his eyes. It's all off. It can't be done. How could I possibly get into the house? I take it the little brute sleeps in the house. That need constitute no obstacle, sir, no obstacle at all. The animal sleeps in a basket in the hall. Perhaps you are familiar with the interior of the house, sir? I haven't been inside it since I was at school. I'm Mr. Hignett's cousin, you know. Indeed, sir, I wasn't aware. Mr. Hignett sprained his ankle this morning, poor gentleman. Has he? said Sam, not particularly interested. I used to stay with him, he went on, during the holidays sometimes, but I've practically forgotten what the place is like inside. I remember the hall vaguely, fireplace up one side, one or two suits of armour standing about, a sort of window ledge near the front door. Precisely, sir. It is close beside that window ledge that the animal's basket is situated. If I administer a slight soporific. Yes, but you haven't explained yet how I'm to get into the house in the first place. Quite easily, sir. I can admit you through the drawing-room windows while dinner is in progress. Fine. You can then secrete yourself in the cupboard in the drawing-room. Perhaps you recollect the cupboard to which I refer, sir? No, I don't remember any cupboard. As a matter of fact, when I used to stay at the house, the drawing-room was barred. Mrs. Hignett wouldn't let us inside it for fear we would smash her china. Is there a cupboard? Immediately behind the piano, sir. A nice roomy cupboard. I was glancing into it myself in a spirit of idle curiosity only the other day. It contains nothing except a few knick-knacks on an upper shelf. You could lock yourself in from the interior and be quite comfortably seated on the floor till the household retired to bed. When would that be? They retire quite early, sir, as a rule. By half-past ten the coast is generally clear. At that time I would suggest that I came down and knocked on the cupboard door to notify you that all was well. Sam was glowing with frank approval. "'You know you're a mastermind,' he said enthusiastically. "'You're very kind, sir.' "'One of the lads, by Jove,' said Sam, "'and not the worst of them. I don't want to flatter you, but there's a future for you in crime, if you cared to go in for it.' I'm glad that you appreciate my poor efforts, sir. Then we will regard the scheme as passed and approved? I should say we would. It's a bird. Very good, sir. I'll be round at a quarter to eight. Will that be right? Admirable, sir. And I say, about that soporific. Don't overdo it. Don't go killing the little beast. Oh, no, sir. Well, said Sam, you can't say it's not a temptation. And you know what you Napoleons of the underworld are. End of chapter 15. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org.
Chapter Sixteen, Part One of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Sixteen, Part One. If there is one thing more than another which weighs upon the mind of a storyteller as he chronicles events which he has set out to describe, it is the thought that the reader may be growing impatient with him for straying from the main channel of his tale, and devoting himself to what are, after all, minor developments. This story, for instance, opened with Mrs. Horace Hignett, the world-famous writer on theosophy, going over to America to begin a lecture tour, and no one realizes more keenly than I do that I have left Mrs. Hignett flat. I have thrust that great thinker into the background, and concentrated my attention on the affairs of one who is both her mental and moral inferior, Sam Marlowe. I seem at this point to see the reader, a great brute of a fellow with beetling eyebrows and a jaw like the ram of a battleship, the sort of fellow who is full of determination and will stand no nonsense, rising to remark that he doesn't care what happened to Samuel Marlowe, and that what he wants to know is how Mrs. Hignett made out on her lecturing tour. Did she go big in Buffalo? Did she have em tearing up the seats in Shenacity? Was she a riot in Chicago, and a cyclone in St. Louis? Those are the points on which he desires information, or give him his money back. I cannot supply the information, and before you condemn me, let me hastily add that the fault is not mine, but that of Mrs. Hignett herself. The fact is, she never went to Buffalo. Shenacity saw nothing of her. She did not get within a thousand miles of Chicago, nor did she penetrate to St. Louis. For the very morning after her son Eustace sailed for England in the liner Atlantic, she happened to read in the paper one of those abridged passenger lists which the journals of New York are in the habit of printing, and got a nasty shock when she saw that, among those whose society Eustace would enjoy during the voyage, was Miss Wilhelmina Bennett, daughter of J. Rufus Bennett, of Bennett, Mandelbaum and Co. And within five minutes of digesting this information, she was at her desk writing out telegrams cancelling all her engagements. Iron-souled as this woman was, her fingers trembled as she wrote. She had a vision of Eustace and the daughter of J. Rufus Bennett, strolling together on moonlit decks, leaning over rails damp with sea-spray, and, in short, generally starting the whole trouble over again. In the height of the tourist season, it is not always possible for one who wishes to leave America to spring on the next boat. A long morning's telephoning to the offices of the Cunard and White Star brought Mrs. Hignett the depressing information that it would be a full week before she could sail for England. That meant that the inflammable Eustace would have over two weeks to conduct an uninterrupted wooing, and Mrs. Hignett's heart sank, till suddenly she remembered that so poor a sailor as her son was not likely to have had leisure for any strolling on the deck during the voyage of the Atlantic. Having realized this, she became calmer, and went about her preparations for departure with an easier mind. The danger was still great, but there was a good chance that she might be in time to intervene. She wound up her affairs in New York, and on the following Wednesday boarded the Neuronia, bound for Southampton. The Neuronia is one of the slowest of the Cunard boats. It was built at a time when delirious crowds used to swoon on the dock if an ocean liner broke the record by getting across in nine days. 
it rolled over to Cherbourg, dallied in that picturesque port for some hours, then sauntered across the channel, and strolled into Southampton water in the evening of the day on which Samuel Marlowe had sat in the lane, plotting with Webster the valet. At almost the exact moment when Sam, sidling through the windows of the drawing-room, slid into the cupboard behind the piano, Mrs. Hignett was standing at the customs barrier, telling the officials that she had nothing to declare. Mrs. Hignett was a general who believed in forced marches. A lesser woman might have taken the boat-train to London, and proceeded to Windles at her ease on the following afternoon. Mrs. Hignett was made of sterner stuff. Having fortified herself with a late dinner, she hired an automobile, and set out on the cross-country journey. It was only when the car, a genuine antique, had broken down three times in the first ten miles, that it became evident to her that it would be much too late to go to Windles that night, and she directed the driver to take her instead to the Blue Boar in Windlehurst, where she arrived, tired but thankful to have reached it at all, at about eleven o'clock. At this point many, indeed most women, having had a tiring journey, would have gone to bed. But the familiar Hampshire air and the knowledge that half an hour's walking would take her to her beloved home, acted on Mrs. Hignett like a restorative. One glimpse of Windles she felt that she must have before she retired for the night, if only to assure herself that it was still there. She had a cup of coffee, and a sandwich brought to her by the night-porter, whom she had roused from sleep, for bedtime is early in Windlehurst, and then informed him that she was going for a short walk, and would ring when she returned. Her heart leaped joyfully as she turned in at the drive gates of her home, and felt the well-remembered gravel crunching under her feet. The silhouette of the ruined castle against the summer sky gave her the feeling which all returning wanderers know. And when she stepped onto the lawn and looked at the black bulk of the house, indistinct and shadowy in its backing of trees, tears came to her eyes. She experienced a rush of emotion which made her feel quite faint and which lasted until, on tiptoeing nearer to the house in order to gloat more adequately upon it, she perceived that the French windows of the drawing-room were standing ajar. Sam had left them like this, in order to facilitate departure, if a hurried departure should by any mischance be rendered necessary, and drawn curtains had kept the household from noticing the fact. All the proprietor in Mrs. Hignett was roused. This, she felt, indignantly, was the sort of thing she had been afraid would happen the moment her back was turned. Evidently, laxity, one might almost say anarchy, had set in directly she had removed the eye of authority. She marched to the window and pushed it open. She had now completely abandoned her kindly scheme of refraining from rousing the sleeping house and spending the night at the inn. She stepped into the drawing-room with the single-minded purpose of rousing Eustace out of his sleep and giving him a good talking to for having failed to maintain her own standard of efficiency among the domestic staff. If there was one thing on which Mrs. Horace Hignett had always insisted, it was that every window in the house must be closed at lights out. She pushed the curtains apart with a rattle, and at the same moment from the direction of the door there came a low but distinct gasp, which made her resolute heart jump and flutter. It was too dark to see anything distinctly, but in the instant before it turned and fled, she caught sight of a shadowy male figure, and knew that her worst fears had been realized. The figure was too tall to be Eustace, and Eustace, she knew, was the only man in the house. Male figures, therefore, that went flitting about windles, must be the figures of burglars. 
Mrs. Hignett, bold woman though she was, stood for an instant spellbound, and for one moment of not unpardonable panic she tried to tell herself that she had been mistaken. Almost immediately, however, there came from the direction of the hall a dull, clunky sound, as though something soft had been kicked, followed by a low gurgle and the noise of staggering feet. Unless he was dancing a pas seul, out of sheer lightness of heart, the nocturnal visitor must have tripped over something. The latter theory was the correct one. Montague Webster was a man who, at many a subscription ball, had shaken a wicked dancing pump, and nothing in the proper circumstances pleased him better than to exercise the skill which had become his as a result of twelve private lessons at half a crown a visit. But he recognized the truth of the scriptural adage that there is a time for dancing, and this was not it. His only desire, when, stealing into the drawing-room, he had been confronted through the curtains by a female figure, was to get back to his bedroom undetected. He supposed that one of the feminine members of the house-party must have been taking a stroll in the grounds. He did not wish to stay, and be compelled to make laborious explanations of his presence there in the dark. He decided to postpone the knocking on the cupboard door, which had been the signal arranged between himself and Sam, until a more suitable occasion. In the meantime, he bounded silently out into the hall, and instantaneously tripped over the portly form of Smith the Bulldog, who, roused from a light sleep to the knowledge that something was going on, and being a dog who always liked to be in the centre of the maelstrom of events, had waddled out to investigate. By the time Mrs. Hignett pulled herself together sufficiently to feel brave enough to venture into the hall, Webster's presence of mind and Smith's gregariousness had combined to restore that part of the house to its normal nocturnal condition of emptiness. Webster's stagger had carried him almost up to the green baize door leading to the servant's staircase, and he proceeded to pass through it without checking his momentum, closely followed by Smith, who, now convinced that interesting events were in progress which might possibly culminate in cake, had abandoned the idea of sleep, and meant to see the thing through. He gambled in Webster's wake up the stairs and along the passage leading to the latter's room and only paused when the door was brusquely shut in his face, upon which he sat down to think the thing over. He was in no hurry. The night was before him, promising, as far as he could judge from the way it had opened, excellent entertainment. Mrs. Hignett had listened fearfully to the uncouth noises from the hall. The burglars, for she had now discovered that there were at least two of them, appeared to be actually romping. The situation had grown beyond her handling. If this troop of Tepsichorean marauders was to be dislodged, she must have assistance. It was man's work. She made a brave dash through the hall, mercifully unmolested, found the stairs, raced up them, and fell through the doorway of her son Eustace's bedroom, like a spent marathon runner staggering past the winning post. End of Part 1 of Chapter 16 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.